Let's uh, turn to Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet, the light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, I pray, the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. We're going to be looking this afternoon at the Belgic Confession, Article 5, which you'll find on page 54 in the Three Forms of Unity. Whence the Holy Scriptures derive their dignity and authority is the title of this article. And it reads as follows, We receive all these books, and these only, as holy and canonical, for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the Church receives and approves them as such, but more especially because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they carry the evidence thereof in themselves. For the very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are being fulfilled. Uh, Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I think we can say that really there are two subjects to address in this fifth article of the Belgic Confession. The first of those subjects is a continuation, really, of Article 4. We talked last week about the canon of the Scriptures, the books of the Scriptures that are inspired, the 66 books. And this article uh, really explains why we accept those books as canonical, as holy and canonical. We receive all these books, and these only, as holy and canonical. Not so much, skipping a couple of lines, because the church receives and approves them as such. But more especially because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they carry the evidence thereof in themselves. So it's a continuation, really, of that uh, idea of the canon in Article 4. But there is another aspect to this article which we do not want to ignore this afternoon, and that's the two lines or three lines that we find at the beginning of the article. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them. 
And so as we consider this subject of the authority of the scriptures, there are really two things. Why do we believe these are the authoritative scriptures? These 66 books are the authoritative scriptures? And secondly, what is the authority of which the article speaks here? We're going to begin with that second question. We receive all these books, these only, as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. So this is teaching us that the authority of the scriptures is an authority over our faith. We receive these books for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. And I think that the three words that the confession uses there are important. We should not uh, just skim over those words as if they all kind of mean the same thing. They, I think each of those words has a particular significance in this context. So let's look at that word regulation, first of all. The scriptures are for the regulation of our faith. God, then, through the scriptures, governs what we believe. I think that's the point of that first word. God, through the scriptures, governs what we believe. He tells us in the scriptures what he wants us to think, what he wants us to accept as knowledge and truth, what he wants us to confess with our mouths. All that is contained in the scriptures, and notice that too, believing without any doubt, all things contained in them. All that is contained in the scriptures, God says to us, these are the things I want you to believe. This is, of course, that principle of the Reformation of the 16th century, which we call sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture governs our faith. Scripture teaches us what to believe. And it lays on us the obligation to bring into captivity every thought that we have to its teaching. Even reason and observation must be subjected to the test of the scriptures. That is, we must not allow our reason to lead us to conclusions which are contrary to the scriptures, and we must not believe the evidence of our senses if the evidence of our senses is contrary to the scriptures. The scriptures are the ultimate authority. And you see, when you examine the lives of the people of God that are recorded in the scriptures, you see the people of God acting in this way. Take, for example, Noah. 120 years before the flood actually came and destroyed the world of Noah's day, God came to Noah and told him that he was going to destroy the world with a great flood and instructed him to build an ark to save himself and his family 
and some of the animals. For 120 years, Noah built his ark according to the commandment of God, against the observation of his senses, against all reason, against even the evidence of the uh, experience of his (coughs) own life. It, It seems, in fact, that there was no rain on the earth prior to the flood, that God watered the ground with a mist prior to the flood rather than by means of rain. Noah had probably never seen such a thing as a flood. He was building the ark undoubtedly on dry land with no way of moving the ark to the water. But yet Noah subjected reason and observation, reason and the evidence of his senses to the word of God and obeyed that word of God, believing that God would do what he said. And the same is true of Abraham. It was biologically impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a son. And yet God said to Abraham, I will give you a son. Against the evidence of his own body, Abraham believed in the promise of God, accepted that promise as better evidence of what was to come than his own observation, than his own knowledge of science. That's the point that we're making here. This word of God has authority to govern us in all the matters to which it speaks. Now, it doesn't speak about everything. We know that. It doesn't talk to us, for example, about Uh, mathematics, though there are mathematical truths assumed in the scriptures. It doesn't tell us about how our digestive system systems work. It doesn't even uh, give to us instructions about every specific kind of behavior, and so we have in our theological teaching this whole area of things we call adiaphora, or things indifferent, Things that some Christians do, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8, eating meat sacrificed to idols without transgressing the commandment of God, but others not able to eat those meat sacrificed to idols because of their conscience. This whole area then of things where the scriptures do not speak and where we are free to do whatever our consciences permit and whatever love for the neighbor permits. The scriptures do not speak to everything, and our practice and our faith is free in those areas. But when the scriptures speak, that's the point of this article, when the scriptures speak, they regulate our faith, they govern our faith. We must submit to the scriptures. And this even though there are sometimes problems that we see in the scriptures, difficulties. We ask ourselves about certain things that the scriptures say, how can this be? And we don't have an explanation for how these things can be. We cannot see the solution to the problem, and 
though we cannot solve the problem, still we conclude that the failure is in us, not in the Scriptures. The Scriptures have spoken. We believe what the Scriptures say. Our inability to understand, our inability to solve the problem, our inability to see how something can be or how something that the Scriptures say cannot conflict with something else that the Scriptures say is due, we say, not to the Scriptures themselves, but to our inability to understand. The Scriptures speak, and they govern our faith. They regulate our faith. So that's the first area that the Confession talks about. The regulation of our faith. The second area is the foundation of our faith. The scriptures are uh, sufficient for the foundation of our faith as well. And I think what the confession means here is that we do not need for the um, creation of faith in ourselves anything beyond the scriptures. The scriptures create faith. And we do not need reason and observation to add to the scriptures in order to come to faith. Thus the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And in Romans 10 talks even more explicitly about this whole thing. He says in Romans chapter 10, verses 13, and following thee, this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But then he goes on in the next verses, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You will not call on someone for salvation unless you have believed in that person. And how shall they believe in him of whom, or better even, whom they have not heard? You will not believe in anyone whom you have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? So faith comes from the hearing of the word of God, as verse 17 says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the scriptures are for the foundation of our faith, the creation of faith in us. This is something that our Heidelberg Catechism also teaches us in Lord's Day 25, question and answer 65. That's on page 32 of the Three Forms of Unity. Since then we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. Where does this faith come from? The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. So the scriptures are for the foundation of our faith. And finally, the scriptures are for the confirmation of our faith. Our faith is not perfect and complete the moment we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are many things we do not know immediately. In fact, many things that we do not know that are in the scriptures throughout our lives. There are truths of the scriptures to which we have a very uh, strong resistance. A wicked resistance, but nevertheless a strong resistance. We don't want to receive these teachings of the scriptures. We fail often in our trust in God. Our faith is weak. We doubt. We despair of God's promises. And the scriptures are for the confirmation of our faith, to teach us those things that we do not know, to overcome our resistance, our sinful resistance to some of the truths of the scriptures, to strengthen daily our trust in the God of our salvation. We turn to the scriptures. So that's what we mean when we say that the scriptures are authoritative in the whole area of our faith. They regulate, they found, and they confirm our faith. And this is true with regard to all the scriptures. We believe without any doubt all things contained in them. We do not allow reason or the evidence of our senses to take precedence over the teaching of the scriptures. This is, I think, the the great problem with uh, theistic evolution. It has accepted the teachings of science. It has allowed the so-called teachings of science to take precedence over the clear teaching of the scriptures. So that's the, the first area that this article addresses. The second area is the reasons why we receive the scriptures as authoritative. And there are again three points here. The first of those points is not so much because the church receives and approves them as such. The second is that because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God. And the third is that they carry the evidence thereof in themselves. That is, they carry the evidence that they are the Word of God in themselves. Now this was a very courageous statement for our fathers to take and a very courageous confession for them to make in this context. This was done in the Netherlands, in the lowlands of Western Europe, at a time when the Roman Catholic Church was persecuting the Protestants in that area and even putting some to death for their confession of the Reformed faith. And in fact, the man who wrote this article lost his life a few years later to the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church, partly because of his confession of this article not so much because the church receives and approves them as such. The Roman Catholic Church discouraged its members from uh, looking into the scriptures, from studying the scriptures and learning from the scriptures for themselves and said, just 
Believe what we tell you to believe and do what we tell you to do and you will be fine. This the Roman Catholic Church said with regard to the canon, we have determined what books are inspired and what books are not. Just accept what we have said and you will be fine. The Church has received and approved these books as holy and canonical, and some of them, by the way, accepted by the Roman Catholic Church were Apocrypha at that time, and still today. This Church said, these are the inspired books. We have authority to speak in this matter. Just believe what we teach you to believe. And so this confession of the church of that time was a flying in the face of the civil authorities and a flying in the face of the teaching of the church of Rome. It was exactly according to the church of Rome because the church received and approved them as such that they were to receive and approve the books that the uh, church had uh, said belonged to the scripture. So they were rejecting that whole position of the Roman Catholic Church. But notice, notice that the confession is very careful how it phrases this. It does not say, not because the church receives and approves them as such, but it says not so much because the church receives and approves them as such. In other words, the Confession says, we do not ignore altogether the testimony of the church in this matter. It has a place. It's the, one of the factors we will consider in this matter. We will not ignore it altogether. It's the last, the least important of the factors, but nevertheless, it is a factor in here. And that's because the uh, people of God at that time had a respect for the work of God's Spirit in his church in former years. Jesus said to his apostles, this is in John 14, verse 26, John 14, verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And in John 16, verse 13, something quite similar. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So Jesus was promising that his people would be guided into all the truth by his Spirit. And the church today should not reject the teachings of the church in the past out of hand and say we must begin all over again with every new generation. We must build on what the church has confessed and taught in the past. Recognizing that the church can err and has erred in many ways. Submitting its teaching to the scrutiny of God's word, but respecting the work of the church, the work of the spirit, rather, in her. So that's a factor. What did the church say in the past? 
And undoubtedly, our fathers looked to the ancient church and the testimony of the ancient church with regard to the canon of the scriptures. So that was one factor, the least important of the three factors here. The second is the testimony of the Spirit in our hearts. The Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they are from God, these 66 books. Now the confession does not mean there that the Holy Spirit is whispering in our ears the names of these 66 books and telling us directly by his voice in our hearts that this book is scriptural and that book is scriptural and so on. That's not what the confession means. Rather, what the confession means to say here is that there is no way for us to accept the canonicity of these 66 books except by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It means to say basically what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor does he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the testimony of the Spirit. By nature, we are uh, inclined to and will always reject the authority, the canonicity, the uh, divine character of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit, therefore, works in our hearts so that we may receive this word of God as his word indeed. And the third factor, then, is that they carry the evidence in themselves of their divine origin. Because they carry the evidence that they are from God in themselves. And this is why God says to his people in more than one place, do not add to or take away from my word. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Or Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, a similar statement. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. And in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. There is confirmation of the scriptures, of the truth of the scriptures, in fulfilled prophecy, the confession says. 
They carry the evidence of themselves, for the very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are being fulfilled. And there are literally hundreds of prophecies in the scriptures that we can see were fulfilled. God said to Abraham that he would have a son, and Abraham had a son, even though it was biologically impossible. God said to Abraham that his seed would become innumerable, and his seed became innumerable. God said to Abraham that his, uh, his seed would come back to the land in which he was a sojourner and would receive it as an inheritance, and they did. God said to David that he would give him a son to sit on his throne forever, and he did. God prophesied through uh, Jeremiah and other prophets that his people would go into captivity in Babylon, and they did. He even told them that their captivity would last 70 years, and it did. Over and over and over again, hundreds of times, we see prophecy of God, the words of God being fulfilled, God doing what he had said he was going to do. We see it in the New Testament as well. Jesus prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, and it happened. We see his prophecies about the end times coming to pass in our own days. Such prophecies as the increase in wickedness and the uh, growing cold of the love of men for God. All these things are being fulfilled around us. We see the scriptures being fulfilled, therefore. There's confirmation, then, of the truth of these 66 books in the fact that they have spoken of things future and they, those prophecies have been fulfilled. And we see this in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That resurrection of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament, you will not leave my soul in hell, nor will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And it happened. And is borne witness to by many faithful witnesses and by many infallible proofs, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If that great fact of God's work of salvation is true, then there is no difficulty with believing the Scriptures. So we see these three things then combining to teach us that these books are holy and canonical books. The testimony of the church, the witness of the spirit in our hearts, and the testimony of the scriptures themselves. Now, before we end our discussion, just a couple more things, I think, that we should mention as implications of this. And that is, first of all, then, in matters of the faith, we appeal first to the Scriptures, and ultimately only to the Scriptures. Reason and the evidence of our senses have their place as the handmaids, the servants of faith, but they must not be allowed supremacy over the scriptures. We must never allow reason or observation to take us away from the teaching 
of the scriptures. All reason and observation must be submitted to the test of the scriptures. Nor do we appeal to the church's authority, to the writings of men, to experts, or the opinions of men. All these also are subject to the authority of the scriptures. They can be very helpful to us, but they must not be allowed to be more than helps. We do not take our confessions and exalt them above the scriptures as ultimate authority. They are helps in understanding and in teaching. They help us to systematize and summarize scriptural teaching. Thus, for example, the teaching with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity. We go to the scriptures and we look at what the scriptures have to say about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both Old and New Testament scriptures. And we put this all together under the heading, the doctrine of the Trinity, summarizing and systematizing the teaching of the scriptures and submitting our minds in that way to the whole of the scriptures. But the confessions must not be exalted above the scriptures. Their authority extends, therefore, to all the areas in which they speak. And we always go first to them. Do the scriptures have anything to say about this matter? And we believe what the scriptures teach. But that authority of the scriptures, of course, extends even farther than that. It extends to all of life, not just to our thinking, to what we believe, but to our behavior, to our desires, to our inclinations, to our feelings, to our attitudes, to our words. Every aspect of life, inward and outward, must be tested against the scriptures. I'm angry. Is it a righteous anger? I am sad. Is it a righteous sadness? I um, do not like this person. Am I righteous in not liking this person? I want this. Am I righteous in wanting that? I have done this. Was I right in doing it? I have this kind of inclination towards this or that kind of behavior. Is it right or wrong behavior? According to the test of the scriptures, all of life, every aspect of life, submitted to the test of the scriptures, the infallible and authoritative scriptures. God speaks, God tells us, and God shows us in his scriptures how we must live, how we must think, how we must feel, what we must say. In all these things, we submit ourselves to what the scriptures say. But doing it is a lifelong endeavor. It doesn't come immediately. It will not come perfectly even in this life. Paul says of the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, it is a two-edged sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It's a living and powerful word of God. 
And we submit ourselves and all that we are and all that is in us to the test of that word, to the sword of that word, praying with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the authority of God's word working in our lives from day to day and from moment to moment. Search me, O God. Let your word, the living and powerful word, the sword of the Spirit, pierce my heart, pierce my soul, expose me to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, so that I may be conformed to the image of the divine word himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless his word for us.